This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 5 The Extraordinary Cabman. From time to time, I have introduced into this newspaper column the narration of incidents that have really occurred. I do not mean to insinuate that in this respect it stands alone among newspaper columns. I mean only that I have found that my meaning was better expressed by some practical parable out of daily life than by any other method. Therefore I propose to narrate the incident of the extraordinary cabman, which occurred to me only three days ago, and which, slight as it apparently is, aroused in me a moment of genuine emotion bordering upon despair. On the day that I met the strange cabman, I had been lunching in a little restaurant in Soho, in company with three or four of my best friends. My best friends are all either bottomless skeptics or quite uncontrollable believers, so our discussion at luncheon turned upon the most ultimate and terrible ideas, and the whole argument worked out ultimately to this, that the question is whether a man can be certain of anything at all. I think that he can be certain, for if, as I said to my friend, furiously brandishing an empty bottle, it is impossible intellectually to entertain certainty, what is this certainty which is impossible to entertain? If I have never experienced such a thing as certainty, I cannot even say that a thing is not certain. Similarly, if I have never experienced such a thing as green, I cannot even say that my nose is not green. It may be as green as possible, for all I know, if I have really no experience of greenness. So we shouted at each other and shook the room because metaphysics is the only thoroughly emotional thing, and the difference between us was very deep because it was a difference as to the object of the whole thing called broad-mindedness or the opening of the intellect. For my friend said that he opened his intellect as the sun opens the fans of a palm tree, opening for opening's sake, opening infinitely forever. But I said that I opened my intellect as I opened my mouth, in order to shut it again on something solid. I was doing it at the moment. And as I truly pointed out, it would look uncommonly silly if I went on opening my mouth infinitely forever and ever. Now, when this argument was over, or at least when it was cut short, for it will never be over, I went away with one of my companions who, in the confusion and comparative insanity of a general election, had somehow become a member of Parliament, and I drove with him in a cab from the corner of Leicester Square to the member's entrance of the House of Commons, where the police received me with a quite unusual tolerance. Whether they thought that he was my keeper, or that I was his keeper, is a discussion between us which still continues. It is necessary in this narrative to preserve the utmost exactitude of detail. After leaving my friend at the house, I took the cab on a few hundred yards to an office in Victoria Street, which I had to visit. Then I got out and offered him more than his fare. He looked at it, but not with the surly doubt and general disposition to try it on, which is not unknown among normal cabmen. But this was no normal, perhaps no human cabman. 
He looked at it with a dull and infantile astonishment, clearly quite genuine. Do you know, sir, he said, you've only given me one shilling eight pence. I remarked with some surprise that I did know it. Now, you know, sir, he said, in a kindly, appealing, reasonable way, you know that ain't the fare from Euston. Euston, I repeated vaguely, for the phrase at that moment sounded to me like China or Arabia. What on earth has Euston got to do with it? You hailed me just outside Euston Station, began the man with astonishing precision, and then you said, What in the name of Tartarus are you talking about? I said with Christian forbearance. I took you to the southwest corner of Leicester Square. Leicester Square, he exclaimed, loosening a kind of cataract of scorn. Why, we ain't been near Leicester Square today. You hailed me outside Euston Station, and you said, Are you mad, or am I? I asked with scientific calm. I looked at the man. No ordinary dishonest cabman would think of creating so solid and colossal and creative a lie. And this man was not a dishonest cabman. If ever a human face was heavy and simple and humble, and with great big blue eyes protruding like a frog's, if ever, in short, a human face was all that a human face should be, it was the face of that resentful and respectful cabman. I looked up and down the street. An unusually dark twilight seemed to be coming on, and for one second the old nightmare of the skeptic put its finger on my nerve. What was certainty? Was anybody certain of anything? Heavens, to think of the dull rut of the skeptics who go on asking whether we possess a future life. The exciting question for real skepticism is whether we possess a past life. What is a minute ago rationalistically considered, except a tradition and a picture? The darkness grew deeper from the road. The cabman calmly gave me the most elaborate details of the gesture, the word, the complex but consistent course of action which I had adopted since that remarkable occasion when I had hailed him outside Euston Station. How did I know, my skeptical friends would say, that I had not hailed him outside Euston? I was firm about my assertion. He was quite equally firm about his. He was obviously quite as honest a man as I, and a member of a much more respectable profession. In that moment the universe and the stars swung just a hair's breadth from their balance, and the foundations of the earth were moved. But for the same reason that I believe in democracy, for the same reason that I believe in free will, for the same reason that I believe in a fixed character of virtue, the reason that could only be expressed by saying that I do not choose to be a lunatic, I continued to believe that this honest cabman was wrong and I repeated to him that I had really taken him at the corner of Leicester Square. He began with the same evident and ponderous sincerity. You hailed me outside Euston Station, and you said. And at this moment there came over his features a kind of frightful transfiguration of living astonishment, as if he had been lit up like a lamp from inside. Why, I beg your pardon, sir, he said. I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon. You took me from Leicester Square, I remember now. I beg your pardon. And with that this astonishing man let out his whip with a sharp crack at his horse and went trundling away. The whole of which interview, before the banner of St. George, I swear, is strictly true. 
I looked at the strange cabman as he lessened in the distance and the mists. I do not know whether I was right in fancying that although his face had seemed so honest there was something unearthly and demoniac about him when seen from behind. Perhaps he had been sent to tempt me from my adherence to those sanities and certainties which I had defended earlier in the day. In any case, it gave me pleasure to remember that my sense of reality, though it had rocked for an instant, had remained erect. End of chapter 5